I'm here with my friend Boris Jovanov. How's it going? And we're doing the first part in a multi-part podcast series called Why Evangelism Doesn't Work. And this episode is entitled Identity Drives Mission. And I'm a firm believer that this is the case and that it's not money that drives mission. I think sometimes as the evangelism director, that's what I sense people think out in church land. And I also think that sometimes people suppose that, that knowledge drives mission or maybe even ability or plans and processes, or plans and processes, drive strategies, strategies drive mission. So if we could have enough money, we have a good enough strategy, talented and educated people, enough of those and voila, that's, that will drive us to more mission and that will drive us to more success evangelistically. Which just, that can't be the thing driving it because there's got to be something that's driving the desire to have strategic meetings and the desire to collect money. And yeah. the, do you know what I mean? Totally. So what is actually driving it? And often we can miss the, the cause for the tools or the ways that we get there, you know? And so coming back to what really drives mission, I think it's identity because... When you have a solid identity of knowing who you are, knowing why we exist, what time we exist in, and all this makes up your identity, whether you have means or a team or resources or not, you don't let the tools at your disposal determine whether or not you're going to be busy about mission, but rather you use whatever you have available. And there'll be times where you have money available and there'll be times where you don't, yeah. right? There'll be times where you do have amazing strategic plans that work collaboratively with a bunch of different institutions and there'll be times where it's just you on your own and if the driving force is the fancy stuff well then mission's going to die when the fancy stuff's not there it's contingent mission is contingent yeah. upon all those other things yeah. rather than uh something that you do whatever the circumstance that's a good point especially in the corona crisis and everyone mm. locked at home and trying to be an evangelist on their keyboard you know yeah. uh, so we don't have at our disposal what we had three months ago yeah but that doesn't mean we we couldn't yeah. we can't be moving forward look can i ask you a question yeah what do you mean when you say identity i mean uh god's perspective of who you are okay your true identity god is the one who assigns to us our identity uh we don't do that and so identity our god-given identity is what drives mission uh, that's always been the case throughout all of Scripture. Uh, God defines who someone is and what they're called to do. And if they accept that, they change their world. If they don't accept that, they don't change their world. So God is the mastermind. He's the orchestrator of everything. And he calls on certain people for certain purposes. And he comes to them and he, he, he communicates to them their identity. Okay, so like who they are. Who they are and what they're supposed to do. And, uh, and so basically, he communicates who they are and by extension, what they're supposed to do. And so it's the same with us. So that's, I th I th so for me, when I think of identity, it's who you are. When I think of mission, it's what you're meant to do. And so that's why naturally, mm -hmm. who you are determines what you do. Yeah. So just the, from the very 
um, outset, the whole identity drives mission, we see that because who you are determines what you need to do, mission, yeah? Mm -hmm. And so the thought that I kind of had from Revelation, um, last book in Revelation, uh, last chapter part, I mean, in Revelation 22, our mission is to call people to come. Yeah, this is just kind of like the thought that I was having. And so Revelation 22, verse 17, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take water of life freely. So, so he's kind of like the point, right? Our mission is, is an invitation to say, Come. Yeah? Mm-hmm. If the invitation is, Come, you need to be there first. Yeah. Right. If I'm not in Christ, if I'm not, if my identity is not in what he said my identity is, and I'm saying, come, I'm going to be calling against the mission. Right. Right. And so we're told here that the spirit and the bride say, come. And those who hear, they need to join in and say, come. come. And I think that this all stems from who you are because you're calling them to what you've experienced. You're calling them to where you're at. You're calling them to who you are in Christ. Yeah. And so I think that the fact that our mission is calling people to join rather than sending people to go or getting something from them. And then who cares? We're calling people to join. Well, what are you joining? And I think what they're joining really does kind of is our identity. You know, you're calling them to be partake in the same identity that we're, we're all called to partake in. And I think that if you don't know who you are, right, if you don't know your identity, it's going to be really awkward trying to invite someone into something you don't know. It's funny because it, to, to me, like, I get everything you're saying, but it seems a bit abstract. You know, like it's, this, is, this is, I think, the challenge that I have. And I yeah. think that you have too when we talk about the subject of identity driving mission is that it's connect that idea is connected to so many other ideas and it's closely related to other ideas like conviction like being convicted that god of god's word that that idea goes hand in hand with the idea of identity driving mission because i'm convicted that god's word is true i accept what god's word has to say i align my life with it that drives mission mm-hmm. you know how can i how can i be a missionary sent of god who's not convicted first of the word of God. But when I'm convicted by the word of God, I accept the identity that God's word assigns to me. You see, so the idea of identity driving mission is closely aligned with the idea of being convicted about the word of God. And so what you're saying, like I'm hearing it and I think it's totally true. I just think it's like, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about how identity, your identity in Christ, your identity through the word of God drives your mission as a, as a, Seventh-day Adventist Christian or just as a Christ-following believer because it, it's, it's, it's so closely related to so many other truths, if you would, about mission and, and what compels you to mission. Somebody would say, perhaps, uh, the love of, you know, they would think of the text in 2 Corinthians 5 that said it's the love of Christ that constrains us or that forces us into a position where we feel compelled to communicate, like it constrains mm-hmm. us in, into obedience to Jesus mm-hmm. and then following him into mission. So someone would say, well, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. Well, yeah, true. But you're not going to believe in the love of Christ if you're not convicted, convicted by the word of God. And if you don't accept what God says about you, you know what I'm saying? So 
when I say identity drives mission, I, I, I'm not necessarily saying it's the only thing that drives mission. I'm just saying it's, it's like one of the foundational, it's the foundational thing that drives mission. It's a great, how do you say, summary statement. Yeah. Because yeah. within your identity is like this idea that God loves you. I'm a child of God. Within yes. your identity is this idea that the God's word is true and I've accepted it and I'm convicted by the spirit. You know, So somebody could hear me and you or you and I talk about identity driving mission and, and, and then say things like, well, no, it's love for Jesus that drives mission. No, it's conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit that drives mm -hmm. mission. And then I would say, yeah, that's true. But those ideas are encompassed within the idea that identity, your God-given identity drives mission. And I, think, and I think that the idea that identity drives mission is, is more clearly seen in the stories where God is commissioning someone to do something for him. Mm -hmm. So Jeremiah, you know, before you were formed, I knew you and I ordained you to be a prophet. So God's yeah. saying, your identity before you even existed was prophet. Yes. Like I decided that you were a prophet. And you didn't even come into existence yet. Um, and then he's like, okay, so now I've set you up. This is what you're going to say. This is how things are going to work. You ready to go? And Jeremiah has to accept his God-given identity as an ordained prophet of the Lord if he's going to go forward in the mission. And the same with Moses, right? Like he's God's shepherd. He's going to call God's people out of Egypt. Um, that's the person who he is. Um, God ordained him to be so when he was born. And if he accepts that identity then he'll, he'll succeed. So yeah, like there's lots of different ways to look at the subject of yeah. what drives mission, but yeah. No, I, I agree with everything you said. It's identity, and that's why I asked, what do you mean when you say identity? Because it is such a huge thing. Because if someone's like, no, 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 the fact that I know that I'm loved- Is what drives me. Is person. what drives me. But you could also argue, well, how is not you being loved a part of your identity of who you are? Yeah. You're the loved one. That's right. Do you know what I mean? Or you're a child of God. You're, you're a child you're a of, God. of God. You, you like you're a daughter of God. You have been purchased at a price. Like that's who we are, right? So yeah. identity is a huge encompassing thing. But I do like Matthew 16, mm -hmm. where Jesus comes to his disciples and says, "Who do you? Who do? Who are people saying that I am?" Yeah. Yeah. And they respond right. In verse 14, and it says, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And then Jesus there comes and he proclaims to him that, you know, no man revealed this to you. It was the Father who has revealed this to you. Yeah. And I like 21. It says, From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Mm -hmm. So it seems that Jesus himself held off teaching them his mission till they understood his identity. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, totally. So there's a, a good process in this. No. There's a process in this. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know who originates this um, slogan or whatever it is, but Brendan Pratt uses it a lot. Yeah. And he, he, he used it a lot when he was pastoring as well with how he addressed different issues with different people. And it was belong, believe, behave. 
And so depending on what challenge they were having, he'd first ask himself, okay, are these people feeling like they belong a part of the church? Are they welcomed? Are we nice to them? Are they accepting? Do they have community? Blah, blah, blah. But then he'd be like, okay, do they believe? And I think believe is really the area of where identity comes through. I guess belong and belief. It's like the category. It's, 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 yeah. it's kind of in there. It's in that, yeah. And so if someone's behaving in an appropriate way, he works backwards and says, okay, do they even feel like they belong here? Mm. And how do we communicate that God wants them to belong here? Yeah. Maybe they do belong here and they do have community. So you will ask the question, okay, do they believe? Like, do they believe what scripture teaches? Do they believe what God teaches? Because if you're just trying to deal with behavior and they don't believe it, it's futile. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it's because the idea, the idea stems from that essentially belonging and belief, believing are the two greatest factors to determine behavior. Do you know what I mean? And so Jesus, we know later on, the gospel of Matthew finishes pretty much with the Great Commission. And so before they get the Great Commission, he reveals his mission. But before he reveals his mission or the mission he has for them, he needs them to see who he is. Do you know what I mean? And there is this process of identity being first and the outflow of that is mission. Like yeah. that, that's what comes next. And, um, and yeah, I think that, again, to me, I know what you're saying. There's a lot of topics that this can be kind of blurry, but I do oh, think right. it's all encompassing in that. How do you invite someone to something you haven't been to? Yeah. How do you give something to someone you don't have? How do you how do you do the work that is assigned to an apostle if you're not an convinced apostle. you're an apostle? Sure. How do you do the work that is reserved for a prophet if you don't believe that you're a prophet? Or and so just now everybody listening could say, Oh well, yeah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I an apostle in the like mm-hmm. twelve mm-hmm. disciples sense. But yet there are some things that we can all affirm. We all are as Christ followers. So I think on that very basic level, we all have to accept those, that, those identifying characteristics of the children of God. So, uh, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we may be called the sons of God. Okay, so you'd imagine that children of the king of the universe, to some degree, to some extent, act like him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you are the light of the world, Jesus says. In the Sermon on the Mount. So, okay, let your light shine before men so that they could see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Neither do men take a candle and hide it under a bushel, Mm -hmm. but they set it on a lampstand so that it could light the whole house. Okay, so I'm supposed to live a life of unashamed witness for God where I just express the light of God in whatever way I possibly can. So if I don't accept Jesus' words that I, as a Christ-following believer, am... A reflector of his light and ordained to light up the world well then I'm probably not going to do that so 2nd Corinthians 5 God was in Christ reconciling the world not imputing their trespasses to them and then it says later in the passage that we are Christ's ambassadors in his stead and we beseech you in Jesus's name be reconciled and so he's speaking from from the standpoint of those who are reconciled mm-hmm. believers in Christ genuine faith-based believers, um, converted, repentant believers. And he's saying to those who are not, be reconciled. And I'm an ambassador. So, okay, so this would then infer that all true Christ followers are ambassadors for Christ. 
Um, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, we're all witnesses of what's in our heart. I'm not ashamed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so on that general level, we're all called to be unashamed witnesses who express freely our belief, who are the lights of the world, and who are God's agents of reconciliation to other people. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, and he's talking to the collective there in Corinth, the whole church, which would then mean that uh, Paul, the great, you know, scholar, pharisaical leader, uh, turned Jesus follower, believed that every single believer in the Christian church was a part of the ministry. So if I accept, yeah, I'm a part of the ministry. I'm a light of the world. Well, this is going to affect drastically what I'm willing to commit to doing. For sure. For God. So. I just read a book by John Piper, which was really fascinating. And in there, he's dealing with the dangers of professionalizing the ministry. Yeah. But he's doing it from the standpoint of it that it's dangerous for ministers. Because we have a calling. A calling which, if we accept, is to lay our life for the service of God. And so we have a huge privilege, like a huge privilege, to be able to receive a wage from serving God, right? You don't have to set aside 50 hours of the week to do a job so that you can finish it to get busy about what you believe is your first calling, whether it's the work of an apostle or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And he was just saying that when you professionalize this, then you start like rather than thinking about just self-sacrifice for the cause of God and the calling upon God's life to separate your life for service to Him, your life, mm -hmm. you start separating 36 hours a week because right. they're your entitlements. It's a vocation that you're in, yeah. You, you start being concerned about making sure that you got your four weeks annual leave and what about paternity leave and what about fuel allowance and what about... The, 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 and he was just saying that... There is a real blessing in the professional ministry because you really do have a privilege to wholeheartedly distractionless focus on doing God's work and helping as many others to be partakers in this work as well. But the undercurrent, right, the, the persuasive temptation of that circumstance is to then, it seems to sometimes have the opposite effect. And that is rather than yeah. just liberating you to so focus solely on the work, you end up being, I guess, worried about what entitlements you may be having or missing out on. And, and then if, you if get the, to that mind of like, well, for... I fulfilled my 36 hours, right? Yeah. I fulfilled my time. And so he talks about it in this book. And it's such a great, like the way he articulates it, for those of you who know, he's an amazing writer and he articulates stuff really well. But it takes, the temptation is to rather than use it for a whole life of service, it shifts your mindset yeah. to what's required by the whatever employing institution of it. It saps the missional spirit out of you. So Jesus said, freely have you received, freely give. And there's this, this kind of missional spirit that's supposed to attend those who preach the gospel. Yes. But then as soon as you, you corporatize it, you, you, you careerize it, if that's a word. Yeah. But it, yeah. yeah and, and, and I think a big reason for that is... I, Identity, right? Because it takes you from this God-given spiritual gift, right? Mm -hmm. These things... Like you're called, that's what it is, it, this is what you do, this to is To a job. Yep. It shifts it and makes it a job. You, your identity then is an employee, like you're, you're employed. Yeah. Um, oh, I have a power. Let me jump yeah, in. Go, go, go. Let me jump in. So check it out. So David, 
the anointed, soon to be king of Israel. Was he anointed yet? Yes, he was anointed. Mm -hmm. He gets uh, instructions from his dad to go to see his brothers who are in Saul's army. Hmm. And it's the whole 1 Samuel 16 thing. Yep. The Philistines are over here. The Israelites are over here. The Philistine champion, Goliath, is challenging God and his armies and asking anyone to come fight him one-on-one. -on -one. And they're going to fight as representatives of their, of their armies. And whoever wins, wins for the army. And whoever loses, loses for their side. And uh, he gets to the battlefield and his instructions from his dad were, David gets to the battlefield, his instructions from his dad were, see how your brothers are doing and deliver this milk and cheese to the captain. Of bread, bread and grain bread, and cheese. Bread and grain and cheese. Yeah. Um, to, the, to the captain of their, yeah. who, who's in charge of their, uh, whatever you'd call it, like their division or yeah. whatever. So he does that. And if he just goes home, like if he just goes home at that point, in the story, we don't get the story of David and Goliath, but we would have had a story of a guy who did his job well. He'd still be faithful. He'd still be faithful because his job was just, my job is to go to the, the army and see how my brothers are doing, get a report from them, go back home, give them the milk and the grain and whatever, and then I've, I've done it. But he had that missional spirit, that spirit of, that a man has when he's con convicted that he's called to, to stand up in God's name and promote the truth of God and to stand on behalf of the armies of God. And so he ends up doing what no one else in the army does. And he's not even a professional soldier. They're the professional soldiers. They're the ones who are in the army. He's not. And he's the only one that's willing to go yeah. because he didn't allow, you know, it's basically he had that, that missional spirit. He yeah. had that concept of himself that I'm on God's side. God has called me and ordained me. And so he didn't see as men see, he saw as God sees. Yes. And something else too, by the way, it, that I've learned from that story just recently is that when Samuel goes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse and he sees the first seven sons of Jesse, he, he, the first one that he sees, he says, for sure, this is the one. Mm -hmm. For sure, this is the one. Because the sons, the oldest sons, son of Jesse looked the part. He looked the part of a king and he looked the part of someone that would stand for God, right? Yes. But then... David's the anointed one. And when King Saul on the battlefield sees David and says, You're, you, you can't fight this guy. He's a trained soldier. You're just a kid. So he didn't look the part, but he played the part. And, and, that, and this is kind of what I was going to get at. Like yeah. he was anointed to be king, but he wasn't king. No, but do you understand the point that I'm no, making? No, I fully get what you're saying. So, and, so and David's so, brothers looked the part, but yes. David played the part. Yes. And he's what the point he that the I was... Right spirit. He's the point that I was yeah. coming to. Does that to. go in line with what you're 100 saying? 100% it does. Yeah. 100% it does. David was king whether he was in king that or position not. or not. That's right. He, he acted as a king without being a king. He didn't need the title. And he acted as a king when he was king. Now, we also know that when he became king, mm -hmm. he acted as a king. But in that very system, that created some, I guess, ingrained temptations, which made him as a king act not like a king. <laughs> yeah, it made it harder for him to right? be the king that he really was. Yeah, now don't miss this. Yeah. God ordained him to be king. He was where God needed him to be, but there's intrinsic dangers With the in a good thing. Yeah, It's a good thing. And I'm talking personally here, like there, there's an intrinsic challenge that happens of rather than just 
your identity on your calling from God, mm-hmm. you become, and, and that being what you need to do, you become tempted to think your identity as someone who's employed and what are they requiring of you. Mm-hmm. And what they can require of you is just whatever the legal thing yeah. allows for that. And so, likewise, mm-hmm. an apostle is an apostle whether they're employed or not. Yeah. A pastor is a pastor whether they're employed, employed or, or not. not. That's right. A, a teacher is a teacher whether they're employed or not. Evangelist is an evangelist whether they're employed or not. And so, as I was reading this book, yeah, 100% true that, that professionalizing or the employment of certain spiritual gifts it's not good or bad. They're not good or bad. It, well, actually, it it's, it it's really good. It can it's, be good. It no, can be yeah, bad. It's really good. And it has dangers. And so we have to be really aware to make sure that we're constantly keeping self in check and getting our identity from God rather than from human systems, right? Yes. Um, the vice versa of that is true. The, the dangers that it has for us ministers... It could potentially even have even greater dangers for the laity because something that can be communicated is that only those who are employed are called. And so that's why I've always had a problem with the idea of, of, of combining the idea of calling with job. Yes. I've always had a, a, a little bit of discomfort, like when I hear theology students talking about getting a call. Like, have you received a call yet? Now, I understand that to some degree that's a good thing because that it shows a respect of the elder leadership and those who are in positions of leadership and that they speak for God and they recognize on God's behalf and we are a body and we acknowledge the body and the authority invested in leadership. Like, by all means, that's a positive thing. So when a young guy goes, yeah, you know, when they associate a call with a job and they're doing that through the lens of a sincere guy who's respecting spiritual authority, like, amen, that's cool. But at the same time, there is a difference because what if like you're in a coronavirus crisis and you've just graduated from theology school and there's no money? Does, Does that then mean that you're not called to pastor if you're really called to pastor? Or does that mean you're not called to preach if you're really called to preach? And I don't say this as somebody who has always gotten a paycheck for what I do. I'm someone who felt when they first became converted that they were supposed to go preach. And so I preached the gospel and did evangelistic outreach work for six years of my life without a dime coming from the Seventh-day Adventist church tithe coffers. And, and, and I think there needs to be that type of conviction in the ministry or else you're definitely not gonna be able to lead people through the issues at the end of time. But that conviction only comes from knowing who you are and who, right, what right, God's right. called you to. And, Dude, and a, a bit of this concern, I get yeah. the concern, but a bit of it is semantics. Because I don't think these Theo students are saying that no, God no, has no. not called them to their point. It's just that's what the language that we've assigned that we use, no, but to getting effect, employed. Language affects your thinking. For sure. And no, so, it really does. So, so tons of guys will, and this is nothing on a young, immature guy who doesn't know much, who just graduated college. Like, I'm not, you know. No, I think the onus is on us as leaders to restore language to reflect our actual beliefs. That's right. And, 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 and so what you're saying about church membership beginning to believe in their minds that the only people who are called are those who are employed, that, that idea is encouraged, that, that wrong thinking is encouraged by using the term 
a call. We, we could say things like, have you received a call to pastor a local church with a conference as a job? That would be more accurate, right? Like, <laughs> now, of course, you don't, you don't want to sit, speak like that all the time. <laughs> but if you're not communicating that on some level, then you, you have what we have today. And that is a disempowered majority who we have not disempowered intentionally, but we have not identified them as the word of God identifies them. And I think there's a danger in, in, in clergy becoming conditioned by the idea that we are the only ones called because we have a job. Like For sure, job. 100%. And therefore, we, see, we, we sometimes we overlook what's right in front of our faces. We, we, we can't see what's in front of us. Because, of, because we're only looking for what we see. So I'm a local church pastor and I'm looking for, you know, assistance and support in the ministry. And what if it's all around me? What if the talent's all around me? What if the passion's all around me? But what if it's kind of oppressed under this kind of wrong thinking that they're not like ordained? And, and I might think to myself, well, they didn't, you know, they didn't study like I did. They don't have a job like I do. They don't go to the minister's meetings like I do. And so you can unknowingly or unintentionally kind of create a second class kind of status in your own mind. And you, you even can create this first class status where you can meet somebody who doesn't believe our fundamental teachings, gets no success in ministry, uh, shrinks, you know, has pastored maybe for a short period of time, but shrunk every church that they pastored and divided it. And they're a maybe toxic person who doesn't love Jesus and don't show any of the fruits of the spirit or any of the calling that the Bible says should, any of the evidence of a call that the Bible says a person should show, but because that person's got a PhD in XYZ theological topic, you're just convinced that they're called to ministry. See that there's a danger in that. There is, there is, but like, but we're getting what, off topic. We are, bit. we are a little bit, but like Paul came to mind in a big way when we were talking about this, right? right. But because by the way, we have to, before you say that, uh, this is like the third time I've said before you say that, but I'm not going to go on. We got to talk about Matthew 4 and then end soon. So you do your okay. thing and then we got it. All right. Um, Galatians chapter 2 says, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. This is Paul speaking. Mm -hmm. And then he tells them all the stuff that he's been teaching. And then it says, And when James, Cephas, John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. After 14 years, Paul was not given the right hand of fellowship. But what was he doing for 14 years? Smashing it. He was an apostle. Yeah. He was planting churches. He was yeah. doing it. And so the point is this. There is a real natural, and this is why the whole employment thing is a danger. We have such a narrow purview on what's existing in the world and who's existing in the world. And we don't know hearts. Yeah. We don't know hearts. And so the natural challenge of recognizing someone's calling, the natural challenge of that is that it takes time. And the reality is there are times where you just don't know. Like there just is. Yeah. Like we're just humans and we don't, we're not God. We don't have divine insight often. And, and yeah. so we're just trying to see fruits and we're just trying to... And, and often this stuff can take a lot of time. And then not only that, you hear, you hear conflicting testimonies and you don't know what's true. You don't know all that stuff. And, and so if we're relying on the brethren, so to speak, to acknowledge your calling before you're called, that's not the example that we see here from Paul. And it seems he that the proved, moment... proved his, When he said to Timothy, make full proof of your calling, he was speaking from experience. Yeah, because 
And he wasn't proving it to man. He was being faithful to what God's called him to do. His identity. And so this is kind of where this all is meant to come, come, kind of come come back to. We need to start, I believe, using language of scripture. We don't see language in scripture of members. And we don't see language in scripture of employees. We don't, we, there are overseers and saints. Yeah. But they're all collectively working, right? They're all collectively working and they're all collectively called. And that's who they are. The disciples and God's called disciples to make disciples, right? Who they are, are the hands and feet of Jesus. Who they are is the unique angle that God has to reach someone else. Mm-hmm. And whether someone has 1% to contribute or 80% to contribute, we need all the percentages to be contributing because we're working as one body for mission. Mm-hmm. And often we think the mouth is the body, right? But it's not. Yeah, It's all working together. And that's why... I love in Ephesians chapter 4 where it lists the spiritual gifts of who these different people are, right? In verse 11, he says, he, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. But then he tells us why. It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. You're not members, because I don't like that language because it kind of seems like you're a member in a club, right? Mm-hmm. You're a supporter of this club. But we, we aren't members of a club. We are disciples, right? We are called. We are a priesthood of believers, yeah? And maybe if we use the term member, we just explain that we mean disciple. Again, there's yeah, nothing be, inherently yeah, evil yeah. with these words. We with need these to know what words. we mean by what we say. It's yeah. just important that we allocate to them the meaning of what Scripture is actually called. And, and so yeah. I think that... As more and more of our church members understand who they are, mm-hmm. their identity of what God has called them to do, that it's going to be really difficult to not see an increase in mission. That's right. Right? If, if we're communicating to people that their mission is to fund me, we'll see people believing their mission is to fund me. Right. If we're communicating that God has called you I think we'll start seeing people act according to what God has called them to do. Mm -hmm. And so who they are and what God has called them and God has a calling for every individual that it's all going to be working together for the salvation of the lost. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's that's a given that 100% every single person has that. And I think when you understand that, well, there's real fulfillment that comes from partaking in it. There's real fulfillment. I love the passage in scripture. I can't think of it at the top of my mind. I think it's in Philippians where it says that they became addicted to the work of ministry. Right? In the King James, that's that. how it, in the King James it words it. Yeah. yeah, so in the King James it words it that they became addicted to the word, the work in the ministry. And there is that, there is that thing that exists, man, that when you are doing what God has called you to do, it, 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 it keeps fueling the machine. You know, yeah. it keeps fueling it. Yeah. And, and yeah, That's I good. do think that a, rather than just telling people what they need to do, maybe we would actually get a lot of people doing if they were belonging and believing, if they, right, if they, if they understood who they are, right, if they understood what, how God sees them, yeah. then we'd probably totally. see yeah, the and, do. And, and the, the church... Okay, so just this, I'm just going to kind of bring us, wrap, wrap things up with just one reference to a passage. But to build off of what you say, 
I've become a firm believer in the fact that our church doesn't need more training. It needs more motivation. Really, to, to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, well, it's impossible. So it takes supernatural yes. power. Yes. So God can, with few or many, accomplishes his pur- accomplish his purposes. With the wise or the foolish, he can accomplish his purpose. So what is necessary? Faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith. And uh, faith, uh, whatsoever is born of God over, also overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So we need to be motivated and inspired to faith. And uh, you're motivated and inspired to faith when you believe that you are what God says you are, right? So like what you're saying is, is I couldn't agree more. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful thought. Like we, we often just think we need more training. We need, training is good. Let's keep doing it. Uh, I run a training school. Like that's awesome. Jesus I, I have Bible workers I, I train and, and volunteers that we train. We do training in churches every Sabbath, like training, cool. Yeah. But I think that, we get this idea that if we're trained sufficiently, then everything will be easy and we won't have to exercise faith and we'll be able to control the outcomes and it'll all be on our terms. No, this is a faith walk where it requires miracles to succeed and we've got to just commit and to faith and be inspired to take on the impossible. So yeah, when we're strong in our God-given identity, we're cool. Um, so hey, I just wanted to point out Jesus and and this could be like our last point to, to, to discuss, but... Uh, he's baptized in Matthew 3, and a voice from God comes down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit comes down and, and lights him up. Okay, so this clearly shows to me that being affirmed in your God-given identity is important. Yes. And it shows that identity drives mission. So does the Father, God, want Jesus to succeed? Yeah, because he sent him to seek and save that which was lost. And Jesus says that, therefore, does my father love me because I lay down my life for you. So the father is invested in humanity and loves humanity with an everlasting love and has allowed his son to come and become a human to save us. And Jesus is, is on the verge of beginning his public work in ministry as the savior, as the anointed Messiah. And the father says, what does he say? He could have said like a ton of things. He gives him his identity. He, he, he reminds him of he his identity. Him, like he affirms him in who he is. Yeah. This, he makes this massive, he makes this proclamation. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If identity didn't drive mission, then why in the world would the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? Dude, that's such a good thought because think about this. Like Jesus is about to partake in the mission and the father says nothing about his mission. No, that's right. He doesn't say hard times are ahead, son stay with it or he doesn't say avoid these certain people or he doesn't say hey just a heads up it's judas right like he doesn't give him tips or techniques or a forewarning about mission he he solidifies who he is because mission stem will stem out of who he is i think that's an awesome point man totally and and then you've got the wilderness experience that happens immediately after the baptism 40 days the devil comes to him and says if you're the son of god yeah so god the father seems to understand this basic point identity drives mission so let me affirm my son in his identity 
as he's about to embark upon his mission. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It seems then too that the devil understands this fundamental truth that identity drives mission. And so what does he say to Jesus? If you're the son of God, he tries to get him to doubt his identity at a time when he would be likely to doubt his identity because he's emaciated, he's hungry, he's probably like hallucinated a couple times in the last 40 days from not eating food. And, uh, and the devil says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. So if Jesus would have done that, he would have been showing unbelief in what God had said about him and his mission would have been, it would have cost him the mission and it would have cost him the human race. But it's, it's yes, for sure. And you've, you've worded this, but just with different words, like Satan, the reason he attacked Jesus more than any of us was to keep him from fulfilling his mission. Because the moment Jesus fulfills his mission, well, Saints. the accuser of our brethren has been cast out. Yeah. He's, he's lost. Yeah. As soon as Jesus says it's finished, Satan's, Satan's finished. And so the way Satan tries to stop mission is to attack his identity, yeah. right? Because if Jesus can just slightly lose the sense of who he is, well, then that's a huge chance that he won't do what he, he's here to oh, do. Oh, it's finished. And by the way, I want to even expand on this and go deeper with it and make it even more... Um, forceful what we're saying if Jesus doubts his identity that's manifest unbelief in the word of God Mm. Jesus says he that doesn't believe is condemned already so the greatest sin is the sin of unbelief Mm. and so the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment and sin because ah man I'm forgetting the text but anyways Judgment because, anyways, I'm, I shouldn't have quoted that text. <laughs> Let's just pretend I didn't quote that text for us. But, but okay, so my, my point that I'm, I'm making is that to, to disbelieve the word of God is to be lost, is to not believe. Yeah. So if you don't accept your God-given identity, you don't believe in what God says about you and consequently in you don't God. Believe. You're not believing in God, not actively, not practically yeah. speaking. And so if God says you're something... That's what you are. God is, is the great definer of what is. He is the judge. He's the I am. Um, he's the only one in the universe qualified to determine what things are and what things aren't. He's the creator. And a person may say, I'm this because of what they feel. And their hearts may, you know, incline them to think certain things about themselves. They may have certain genetic dispositions and, you know, be prone to certain feelings and whatever and thoughts about themselves. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Like, what is that worth? You know, we're fallen, limited human beings. And God's word is what we look to to define reality. And if I look into God's word and see that it says something about me and it defines me a certain way, if I believe God and if I believe in God, then I'll believe what he says. And I will now define myself as God defines me. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what we're talking about, you know. And so mm-hmm. you cannot be saved even if you don't accept your identity in God. So this goes further than just mission. This goes to actual salvation. So yeah, that's the last thought I have to say, man. You want to wrap it up? I know you always have something (laughs) more to say. I do. And I'm going to. Yeah, get to it, man. Matthew 24. I'll let you you wrap up the show and I'll exercise self-control. Matthew 24. And he's just the one point, right? Verse 15. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel in the holy place, he says... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, yeah. right? So the point is, they see something and then flee. And, and, and he says something that doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. He says, let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. 
But what, um, uh, pardon me, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Just think about this. He's on the housetop. You'd think he has to go through the house to get out. It's like saying jump off the roof and run. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and we know in the first century that when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, which according to Luke's version of this, that's what this thing that they were looking for was, right? Mm-hmm. When they left, we know that they left for weeks or months and then came back. Like, how long does it take to get some clothes? Yeah. Right? Like, why would Jesus not... Like, what about if you just have a bag pre-packed? You know what I mean? Or just like... your bag. Or just every day, just like have a bag full of your clothes so that when you see this sign, you can, you're ready to go. I don't think that's yeah. what he's saying here. I don't think he has necessarily issues with people grabbing clothes. I think what he's communicating here is that there will come a time where you have to leave everything. And there should be nothing in your heart that creates any hesitation from the moment you see it to flee. There'll come a time where God's going to call people to just separate themselves from everything that they've quote unquote been investing in this world. Their furniture, their property, their entertainment, their iPhones, their blah, 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 whatever it may be. And I think what he's saying is like when you see this sign, don't let that stop you. Nothing, nothing in this world, nothing in your house, nothing in your job, in the field, nothing nothing is who you are. Mm -hmm. You're not leaving any of you behind. You're getting you out. And the only way that when we see this, we'll be able to respond the way God wants us to respond, when he wants us to respond, is if our identity is not tied in any of these temporary things. But if our identity is truly secured in who Christ says we are, because then we can leave everything and still have everything. Because who we are is in Him. That's it. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks so much for joining us as we hung out and talked about the subject. Hope you're blessed and a little bit more informed and ready to to be more what God wants you to be and see yourself as God sees you. Um, All the best. We will see you again. Uh, God bless. Take care. See you, guys.